Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode, brand new, of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. It's been a while, I know. I had two terrific guests lined up, and then they bailed. And then life happens. I have my role on the Kent Sterling Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on CBS Sports 1430 in Indy. I'm calling every single IUPUI women's basketball game, which takes up a lot of time, but man, I'm thoroughly enjoying that one. Oh, and we just had a lot of holidays. Hopefully, the break, though, that won't happen again. As for the Pacers, well, they're sliding down the standings. It hadn't been pretty or enjoyable at all to watch as they started the season 12-5, and had great hopes, went 11-2 in that terrific November. And we even saw Paul George average almost 30 points, 8 rebounds, 4 assists per game. He was named Eastern Conference Player of the Month. But then ever since the team, they've gone 10-14. and 14. They aren't finishing games. They're 0-4 in overtime. We'll discuss this and more on the podcast, but man, they should truly have at least six more wins. Well, we are at the midpoint of the season. The Pacers are 22-19, and 19, good for seventh in the Eastern Conference. That would project them to finish with 44 wins and be in the playoffs, but not be in a position that would allow them to easily advance, I think, to the second round. More than anything with this team, it comes down to defense. We heard Coach Vogel say that on Sunday after their loss at Denver, a game they really had no business losing either. He said our defense is an embarrassment. He called them out and frankly just told it like it is. And I appreciate that. The Pacers aren't playing like a group that is tied together. And they have coughed up over a half dozen games in the closing minutes. None, though, more frustrating than that loss at Boston last week. Well, this week on the podcast, I'm joined with a fresh voice in town, Nate Taylor. He's on the Pacers beat for the Indianapolis Star along with Candace Buckner. I hope that you enjoy. Subscribe to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to me, scott at vigilantsports.com or on Twitter at Scott Agnes. Let's get into the podcast this week with Indianapolis Star Pacers reporter Nate Taylor. First time having Nate Taylor on the program. He covers the Pacers for the Indianapolis Star. And Nate, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the Pacers, want to touch on your history, how you got into journalism and what you are doing today. You're from Kansas City. You come to us, I think, from Miami. Did you always want to be a journalist? Uh, yeah, for the most part, I, I did. It's, it's funny, you know, um, I was sort of one of those kids in college who knew exactly what I wanted to do mm-hmm. <laughs> the moment I got on campus. Uh, where, you know, a lot of my friends sort of spent about a year or maybe two, you know, uh, sort of searching, finding what major they wanted to do. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to do uh, reporting and writing since about high school uh, when my, you know, one of my uh, most influential teachers, Miss Karen Black in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, you know, taught me firsthand journalism, got me into some programs very early uh, before college. And yeah, and just as each you know, one of the reasons why I like this this job so much and, and like being a reporter is you learn something almost every day, you know, whether it's uh, through reporting, whether it's through talking to people, whether it's through, you know, watching a basketball game that, that I've been watching since childhood and still learning and, and finding interesting bits of information about it. So uh, it's always been a passion of mine. And once I sort of unlocked the real, uh, the real situation of, hey, there are people in this world that they give you know, paid salary, <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch sports and then write about it. Where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. Like, like, so if you, if you write and you can write well and you know sports and you're very knowledgeable on that, you can combine the two and people will pay you. I mean, I tell a lot of kids, you know, it, it's, it's like fantasy camp. Like this, this can't be real life. Like, like you're going to pay me uh, to cover professional sports. So once I realized that, it was like, it was exactly Scott. It was like, yeah, where do I sign up? How do I get, how do I get better at this? And how can I make this a career? Um, Cause it sounds more interesting than, you know, being an accountant. What, what was your previous role with Miami other than having to put up with Ethan Skolnick and Shandell and all of them? <laughs> well, those, those guys are great. You know, I, I enjoyed my time in Florida. I was there for about a year. Um, as you know, as I sort of transitioned uh, in my career, but, you know, I was there for a year covering everything, um, whether that was the Miami Dolphins, the Miami Marlins, who were, you know, atrociously bad. Um, and I sort of saw that firsthand. Uh, I covered college sports as well. So that's obviously Miami football, um, a little Florida, Florida Atlantic football for, for most people who don't know. Um, you know, there are, there, you know, between Florida International, Florida Atlantic, Miami, 
Florida University. I mean, there's a ton of football programs in the South Florida area. So, you know, I just bounced around, did a lot of stuff, um, really trying to, you know, I think the versatility uh, is obviously helpful in my career, which is what I also try to tell people who want to get in sports journalism. You know, it's nice to have a niche. You know, obviously now I cover um, basketball for the Indianapolis Star, but it's always good to be versatile, to cover football, to cover baseball, to, to just have a wide knowledge of every sport. So that's primarily what I did for a year in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami uh, area. And then this opportunity came up um, with the Indy Star. You know, they wanted to add a second person to the Pacers beat alongside my colleague and, and good friend Candace Buckner. And so when that, you know, job opening became available to me, a couple of people reached out and said, hey, we know you have some experience covering the NBA. We know uh, you like covering basketball. And I, I went ahead and applied. It's closer for me and my family. Uh, Scott, is, as you well know, me and my wife just had our first child. And so Kansas City and Indianapolis aren't that far away. And I just felt both career-wise and for personal reasons it would be a great move and, and fortunate for me. And, you know, I was blessed to to, to be offered the job and, and, and took it uh, pretty immediate um, just because I knew um, how much people in Indiana care about basketball, how interested the Pacers are, and how fascinating the season has become and what I sort of thought it could become uh, given I think the, the team is, in this in this rare transition period where they're going from one identity to the next, and it was going to be a fascinating thing for me and Candace to cover alongside one another. So you transition to a new city, which is closer to home, but you have a growing family. It's the biggest thing you miss from Miami. Got to be the weather. Is that right? Yeah, the weather and the food. Oh you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I don't think you can get Cuban food, good Cuban food, in in, in Fishers in Indianapolis <laughs> where to live. I mean, if someone knows this, you know, please uh, tweet at me so I can know where to go. At by Nate Taylor, let him know. Yeah. So you know, the, the the weather obviously, the beaches are nice. Although, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so it wasn't like I <laughs> would go to the beach every day, uh, like most South Floridians. Um, but yeah, the weather, the food, you know, the atmosphere is nice as well. But I like having four seasons. I like being amongst what I deem as my own kind of people, Midwestern folks. And so it was a good move, but it was a nice, it was a nice getaway to not have a winter for a year. And now as we talk today, you know, it's <laughs> so these are the right. days where I, sort of, I sort of wonder like, yeah, it would be about 70 in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. And uh, everyone would have still have shorts on. And, you know, that's why everyone hates Miami <laughs> in a lot of ways. Cause they can do that. And, uh, in the middle of January. So you've been on the Pacers beat, what, six months about now. Kind of the storylines have been Paul George returning, Paul George not wanting to play small. Uh, but just, just as a whole, what are you, what's your biggest takeaway from just covering this team? Well, I will say they keep things interesting. You know, I, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you go from being one of the few teams left in the league who, you know, we're going to go through the post, we're going to have two post defenders, we're going to have this, Rim protector who does not care about offense, and we don't care that he's, you know, that he's an offensive player. So all of a sudden, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go the way of the Warriors. We're gonna change everything. We're gonna get rid of, um, you know, Roy Hibbert. We're gonna ask David West to just go somewhere else entirely, uh, and they successfully did that. And now we're gonna play pace of space. We're gonna spread the floor. We're gonna go up and down. We're gonna, you know, force a lot of turnovers and hopefully score points in transition. And, and so they've been interesting. At times it's worked, and of recent it hasn't. And like you said, Paul George is very hesitant about – I don't think he minds the overall change because I think he understood that, you know, Roy Hibbert is more or less on the decline and he's never going to reach sort of the the star level that he was um, as as an all-star. And obviously David West, uh, regardless of his leadership and and, uh, toughness um, is obviously up there in age too. So I don't think he minds the overall change. I think he likes playing at a faster pace. But, you know, he made it pretty clear. I don't want to cover power forwards. I don't want them guarding me. I want to be, you know, I'm a superstar. Like, I want to play small forward. I just want to do what I do. Um, and I want everything to sort of revolve around me regardless of what changes are, are, are yeah. being made. Um, you know, I thought they would be about where they are. I didn't think they'd get to where they are. <laughs> Certainly not how they have with that yeah, terrific November yet. and then this last yeah. month that has been horrible. Yeah, after November, I thought, man, they could have like 30, you know, 30 plus wins before the All-Star break. And now that looks to be pretty challenging. It's not impossible. So, 
you know, it, it, it's an interesting way of how they've gotten here. Uh, I predicted them before the season started to win 45 games and sort of be a sixth, seven seed, fifth seed if everything sort of fell through based on um, tiebreakers. But uh, and so they're they're kind of at that pace right now, and I don't necessarily see them um, getting that much better over a course of time because I just I just don't know how they can get better um, without making some sort of uh, acquisition, uh, and I don't see that really happening based on cap situations and the uh, the least amount of players available they have for other teams. Yeah, it's perfect as we sit here exactly halfway through the season. 22 and 19, and I think, like you said, we kind of all expected maybe the 43 wins to 46 wins range. So that part's not surprising. It's been more so how they've gotten there. And you recently, let's touch on this while we're at it. Uh, you recently <laughs> caught up with Pacers president of basketball operations, Larry Bird, to just kind of get his thoughts on what's going on as a whole. He doesn't speak very often, two, three times a year. General comments, it seemed like, was that he wanted to get back to playing that small ball. He wanted to go with what's working throughout the league. And the Pacers, especially Vogel, with they've just kind of gone on with what's working rather than sticking to one way. Where do you see right. The, the right fit between either one of those? Um, well, Larry's the, Larry's the boss. You know, what, what Candace tells me is, like, look, Larry is the boss. He makes these decisions, and it's up to everyone else to sort of implement them. And, and so it was odd to, to, you know, to fortunately get on the get on the phone with Larry and say, "Hey, you know, here we are." I, I talked to him before Friday's game against the Washington Wizards, and I said, "Hey, we're about forty games in. You know, what are your thoughts?" And I think he reflected a lot of what Pacer fans feel, which is some nights they're great, some nights they're bad. Of recent, they've been more or less the latter. And I don't. He's a, he, his quote was, "I don't know what to make of these guys because they are so up and down." And a lot of us are saying the same thing, right? A lot of us are saying the same thing, and you know the the, the big the big harp or the big quote that I that, that I took away from when I talked to him was, you know, none of us are satisfied, or none of us uh, are happy with the way we're playing right now, even though they're meeting about expectations, like you mentioned, Scott. Even though when when record wise they, they've met expectations, but they're not satisfied because. For whatever reason, and I'm not, I mean, I think the farther we get away from November, the more truth will come out. But was November a mirage to where they just surprised so many teams with their style? They shot the ball so well, and they were able to at least be some resistance on defense to where they are now, where they're not shooting the ball as well. Uh, key players aren't as healthy as they were when the season started. And obviously the, the biggest point is they have provided little to no resistance on defense. <laughs> so the further we get away from November, the further we'll know whether that was a mirage or whether that's something you can build on. But that's what Larry is deemed at this point. Like we won 11 games in November. Let's keep doing that instead of going between, Hey, let's have a boy Allen start or let's have Jordan Hill start. He said, let's just play CJ miles. He will get us through whether he's guarding Kevin <laughs> Kevin Durant or Kevin Garnett or you know Dirk Nowinski or Draymond Green, like, just put him out there because that gives us four potential perimeter players who can score the basketball at a high clip. And he deems this team to be more offense than defense. I think the numbers sort of reflect that so far. What's the issue for Frank Vogel is he's trying to win games in the here and now, not sort of the, the big picture you know, 82-game season. And that's sort of the, the give and take between GM, you know, president, and, and the actual coach. It's like, well, we have, you know, Detroit tonight, and they play sort of a bigger lineup alongside Andre Drummond, so I need to have LaVoy Allen be on the court instead of C.J. Miles. And he's having to make these decisions based on what the other team's roster are. And obviously, I quoted Larry Bird saying, I would like teams to match up to us versus us worrying about who's guarding who on the other end of the court. So whether or not, you know, Frank is going to come around to that or whether Frank's going to, again, be somewhat resistant because he wants to win that game tonight versus the overall stretch, uh, that's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, that's, that's clearly the most interesting thing in the second half of the season. Is Frank going to do what Larry wants or is Frank going to say as the coach, we play better defense based on a bigger traditional lineup, which is true overall. And Frank can kind of go to Larry 
after these last two games and say, look, I played small. You know, I played small against Washington, and we still got blew out. You know, we played primarily with at least, you know, Gurren Robinson third or C.J. Miles on the court in sort of a spread lineup. And, again, we gave up as many points as we have all season. So um, it'll be interesting to watch, but that that's the clear struggle because, you know, Larry clearly wants a philosophy that they want to stand up. We want to run and gun. We want to play fast and free. And Frank's like, no structure, defense, and accommodating Paul George, who also, by the way, doesn't want to be right, right. Who's made it very clear to everyone that look, I play better. I find my rhythm more easier. I know where guys are. I know where the space is for me in a two-man traditional big lineup versus there's four guys and there's a lot of randomness and guys can use space however they will depending on who has the basketball. So I think Frank's trying to accommodate Paul George and trying to get the team to play better defense, and that doesn't go with Larry's view right now based on statistical numbers. Man, hit on a number of topics. Let's try to hit them one by one. First of all, the Larry Bird comment, I, I thought he was right on, and that's kind of what I've been saying, is you got to pick one route and just go with it. And that had been Frank Vogel's philosophy. He had always, year after year, we are who we are. We're playing right. big. And we're going to make other teams match up to us. In the past, he would very rarely change his lineup, switch it up to base it on, on an opposing team. But now, as more teams are going small and, and those big lineups are becoming a rarity, uh, he's going back and forth. And I just don't, I also don't know how much that affects guys playing with one another, the different lineups, guys get comfortable with who's where and knowing where people are, spacing there's just so many factors that have come into it. I'm a proponent for what, whichever route they go, which small seems to make the most sense, although numbers tell you otherwise, at, at least lately. I, I think they should pick one route. What about you? They have to pick one route. And I would say Frank has about 10 more games to decide. Once you're 50 games in, it's essentially a sprint to the playoffs. And you want to be in the best possible situation of, like you said, Scott, guys knowing where one another are on the court, guys knowing the rotation, guys knowing this is what is being asked of me on a nightly basis from here on out. As a, you know, we've had 40 games, you know, now 42, to sort of understand where we are. So I think you give Frank about eight to ten more games to sort of play around with this, look at the numbers, and you just gotta pick. You gotta pick one. Yeah, say maybe know? till the end yeah. of the month. You have yeah, three more games yeah. on this trip, three more games at home. Then you just gotta go one way. Yeah, you, you just got to figure out what gives us the best chance to win. And, you know, obviously their schedule's been tough of late. So that sort of skews the numbers in some way, shape, or form. Where we've looked, you know, we look in March and April and their schedule gets much easier depending on, um, you know, these lower-class Eastern Conference teams. I think they just got to pick her out. You know, Monte Ellis, you know, the oldest guy on the team, said, look, we've, we've played enough games to know one another. And I kind of believe him. Like, you've played 42 games of NBA basketball. Everyone hmm. should know what they're trying to do. But it's hard when you go back and forth between C.J. Miles starting, C.J. Miles coming off the bench, between LaVoy Allen playing predominantly the first quarter and not seeing the floor at all, at all in the fourth quarter, even though when he's on the court, they play better defense. So that's even confusing to me. So pick a style, run with it, and that will better serve Larry Bird if he does want to make a trade. I think right now – it would be hard for him to, to make any move at the trade deadline because he doesn't understand where his team best suits themselves going forward. And so once you pick a once you pick a style, then you have a better chance of knowing, okay, well, if we do this, we need more of this. That way I can go out, call other you know, teams and acquire, you know, assets that can get us to play the type of style we want to play. If we want to play big. How do you go about that on the trade deadline versus going small? So, yes, they have to pick a way. I tend to think they want to play small. I still I still sort of lean with Larry Bird. I mean, again, he's the boss. And we didn't talk. I mean, they didn't make these discussions and these decisions all offseason just so they could revert back to what they were last year towards the middle of the season. I don't think that's the goal. I think that would be sort of – you know, planning backwards, taking a step back um, in the progress of what this team is. And we've seen over these last few games that Miles Turner can play with a small lineup. I mean, he had a career-high 25 points against the different Nuggets. And so my thinking is just play small, tighten up the defense as best you can, create turnovers, and they'll be in better position to have a better spot in the Eastern Conference playoffs. 
You mentioned Miles Turner and what he's been able to do. Having him back after missing, what was it, 21 games or so, he adds that a different element of a, a spot-up shooter that's very comfortable along the perimeter. And that was a, a point they had missing, and without him, you, that'd be almost a position I'd push for them to, to go make during a trade deadline to get a big that could actually shoot it from outside comfortably and confidently. But with the way he has been playing, he adds a different element. I do like, I, I think they need to go back to that small lineup. And this has been something that Larry has been wanting to do for over a year now. And you're right. right after all that talk, Nate, they, they've finally gotten to it. And then they flip back and forth. Let's go back to November. I think ultimately we'll look back at the end of the season, maybe even now, actually, I think November was one of the worst things that could have happened to this team and even fans because they have overbloated expectations now. After you know going zero and three, then you go twelve and five really through the first month. Ever right. since ten and fourteen, and, and winning kind of hides some of those things that are wrong. It covers them up. Losing right. makes and, you make those changes. Right, and and what also is sort of a mirage, or like you said, sort of. The worst possible thing that could happen was Paul George ascended to another <laughs> level that yeah. is just inconceivable. Like there, like no one on this here planet thought he could average thirty-five points per game, which is essentially what he did for a two to three week span. I mean, and, it was and especially it was, not his first month back, first right, year, first a, month a of a year leg. long injury. <laughs> right. I mean, it was mind boggling. that he was playing that well in this new system that they were all sort of learning. Together, I mean, it was, it was crazy. So that doesn't help. C.J. Miles shooting at a career high. I think he shot about 46% from three. I mean, that's not sustainable. <laughs> no, not at, I mean, this month, I wrote it down. This month from three in January, 25.9%. Yeah. So Whereas, I mean, you need that, the middle that, ground of that. <laughs> right. So, so shooting almost near 50% from three for C.J. is unsustainable. And... They just blitzed all these teams. And you look back at November, Scott, what would you say is the most impressive win in that stretch of November and early December? Because right now it's hard to say that's a good win versus a really good team because I don't think they've beaten a really good team yet this year. Mm, Yeah. Uh, At home versus Chicago by double digits. Yeah, you could – you, I would say either that game or when they went on the road and beat the Clippers when Blake Griffin was still Yeah, was still and that was court. by double digits. Yeah, yeah, and that was by double digits. So, I mean, there's, you know, and like the Clippers, like they're okay, but they're not the Warriors, the Spurs, you know. They're or, that second or, tier or, in the NBA. Yeah, they're not, they're not an elite team, or at least I wouldn't consider them one just yet. So, I mean, they beat a lot of teams. I mean, they beat, they beat the Timberwolves, they beat the Bucks, they beat the... And those you have to win. you got to right. take care of those to have a chance. Those don't surprise you by any means, or are you circle them, and, hey, that's going to help them in April. In turn, we're going to look back at this stretch that's going on currently and circle a ton of games that right. they've lost that may end up the reason they're the eighth seed rather than the third or fourth, perhaps. Right. I mean, the, and let's, let's go through all of them. The loss to Miami was abysmal. You cannot be ridiculous up points in the second half and somehow get to overtime. Like you, you, you just can't do that. Then you lose to the Houston Rockets in overtime, which you have no business little, getting there either. That's a little more tolerable, but it's just like if Monte Ellis holds on to the ball, they win the game. Like if, like, like if you just don't have mindless turnovers, you win the game. The the second game in Chicago. You know, if, if George Hill doesn't lose the ball, Jimmy Butler probably doesn't have a chance to tie the game with a three-point shot, which, of course, he does. If you hold on to the ball against Boston, <laughs> you have your defense set, and they probably don't score, you know, 10 points in the final two minutes of the game, which probably means you win that game. Hey, Nate, worst <laughs> loss of the season, that Boston? Just the way it transpired late? Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that you didn't even give your defense a chance, the fact that you came down the court and were so careless with the basketball that it was basically a layup drill for, 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 for the Celtics. So, If I recall is, right, they were up 94-91, didn't score a point for the final three, four minutes, and got outscored 12 nothing. Yeah. And, and gave up like four layups, too, in transition. Right, and, it, and by the way, it's, in front, it's on national TV in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was atrocious. Uh and now you look at this most recent game, they have, I believe, another two or three-point lead with like two minutes to go. 
And all of a sudden, you know, Monte Ellis, the most reliable, one of the most reliable guys on the team, starts missing free throws. And it, 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 it's just inexplicable. And then obviously they have the defensive breakdown. And you have to give Denver some credit. I mean, Will, Will Barton really uh, impressed me last night, driving to the paint, obviously kicking out to, to a wide-open shooter who made the three-pointer that essentially sealed the game. And, you know, give, um, you know, give, I think it was uh, Emmanuel Moutier who made the block on Paul George's uh, sort of game-time three-point attempt. But th- we, just, we just went through, what, six games? <laughs> six, five games that they clearly could have easily won that they had control of. Yep, six more so, wins they should have had, no doubt. Right, right. So, where, they, where they had control with about a minute or two remaining, and they somehow bungled it up. <laughs> And three of those games we hit on were in overtime, and none of them should even reach an extra session. That's the other right. thing. Right. None of them should reach an extra session. And even for that game against the Houston Rockets, they go, okay, well, we give up the lead. We're going we're gonna to get it right this time. And I think they scored the first six points of overtime and then immediately went back into, like, you know, panic mode, tentativeness, not being strong with the basketball. And all of a sudden, you know, Houston comes back from a six-point halftime or excuse me overtime deficit so i mean even when they do things right in overtime they still sort of find ways to lose I mean, it's just mind-boggling it's gotten to the point now where my wife says if any game's close and my wife is like you know she's knowledgeable about basketball but she is by no means you know <laughs> you know knee-deep pacer fans but she's gotten to the point now where she understands that if the game is close and they are on the road. They're not winning. <laughs> it's gotten to that point, though. Let's be real, Nate. I mean, it's gotten yeah, to that yeah. point. Last night, Pacers go down. In my mind, been here before. I've watched this movie seven, eight times this year already. I know what's going to happen. Right. Right. And it almost makes you wonder. It's like Joe, I, I mean, I'm going to say something that's very crazy. But Joe Young was playing so well last night. They took him and put him on the bench in the final minutes to put my tail back on the court because you just assume that, yeah, he's the veteran leader. He'll carry us home. And, they, and in fact, the opposite happened. And I was sort of thinking in my head last night, if Joe Young would have just finished the game, what the Pacers would have won because both he and, and Miles Turner were having such good chemistry on the court. I mean, it, it, these are the crazy things that you think about in the middle of January when the team's slumping, <laughs> but you're just like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe the game would have turned out different because Monte had his opportunities and he missed three or four free throws, which obviously they lost the game by three, which you could you know, they could have went to another overtime to try to salvage the game and they didn't even get that opportunity. To me, I think that was the right call last night just because of Joe Young his what he's hasn't done really this season. I mean, he, he did score in double figures, fifteen point seven assists, seven of eleven shooting, but that was his first time in double figures that's this season. Right. It's his right. first time in quite a while playing double minutes. But down the road, after seeing tape of what worked and what didn't work, you do consider it. I'm a guy that's, especially in college basketball, I think coaches sub way too often. Just stick what's hot, and if a guy really needs a blow, let him tell you he needs to be taken out. Right, right. And I'm not, and I, look, I'm not saying questioning Vogel for his decision last night. I'm just saying these are the crazy thoughts that have to be going through sure. fans. When, oh my God, you know, Joe Young is, a, is just shredding Denver's defense, which is crazy to think because, like you said, it's his first real action since he played against Philly way back in November. But, hey, it's Monte. Let's put him on the court. He's our best ball handler. And that's ultimately why they brought Monte in, right? I mean, he's, right, he's right. supposed okay. to have that killer instinct. He's supposed to be right. that go-to guy late in game. So you have to go to him. Right, yeah. So you, you have to do it. But it's just like... <laughs> At, at what cost can they win a game? And, you know, uh, credit, you know, my colleague, again, Candace Buckner, you know, talking with Frank after last night's game, the most interesting quote coming out of that was Frank saying, until we want to play defense, we will win games. If we don't want to do that, we won't win any games anymore. And I, I honestly have to agree with him. Like, the offense was great last night, but whew, the defense was bad in the fourth quarter. Whew, that was a perf- was so perfect bad. transition there. That's exactly where I was going to go, the defense. And he also said – Flat out, our defense is an embarrassment. And, and right. Frank, and I can see it covering him for quite a while now. You can see in his eye a little bit. Not only is he saying it because he believes it, but he knows it's going to be used by everyone. It's going to get tweeted out. He wants that to get back to everyone. This is my assumption, but just being around him. 
Right. He he knows everybody's going to hear about them, so it's him firing him up. He doesn't call his players out publicly. He's a guy that's a very much a player's coach, but this is another way for him to reach his players. Right, and this is, and this is sort of goes back to a commitment base. You know, Frank has mentioned, he, he, you know, he really likes his team and probably believes in them to a degree that's probably not logical just because he's around <laughs> yeah. the guys so many, yeah. so many days. You know, every, every day he's around them and he's trying to pump them up and, and generate an, an emotional attachment and an energy to one another. And, you know, they've talked so much about being together, you know, being tied together on the basketball court, having a bond. Well, you can't do that if you don't play defense. Like, <laughs> all those phrases sort of lend themselves more to the defensive end than to the offensive end. And, that, and, you know, obviously Frank, ever since he's been the Pacers head coach, has preached defense, and it's for the betterment of the team. That's why they've reached the Eastern Conference Finals a couple times, is because they played defense when it mattered. And that's the fourth quarter, and you can't give up <laughs> 45 points to the Nuggets. Think about this. They have 45 points to the Nuggets. In a 12-minute period where Dalo Garnari, the Nuggets' best player, <laughs> fouled out with like four minutes to go. That, that, is, that is so bad. <laughs> it is so bad to give up that many points when their best player is not a superstar by any stretch of the means. It's, it's Gallinari, who, you know, who's a serviceable, you know, serviceable player and, and a general good guy around the league. But, like, you can't let Will Barton beat you. You, you. you can't let that happen. And, you know, whether it's Miles Turner, you know, understanding the timing of his blocks, but still goaltending enough to make things, you know, not good. Yeah, that'll whether, happen. Yeah. Yeah, that'll happen. Whether it's Solomon Hill, who sort of overplays on defense, so where his, he lets his man drive by him several times. You know, C.J. Miles isn't on the court. Not because he can't, sh- you know, not because of his shooting thoughts right now, but I think Frank has realized CJ is, is just having these mental errors on defense where it, it's getting harder to play him. And then you have Paul George, who is sort of roaming around. And there was this one play in the fourth quarter I noticed where he's trying to help Solomon Hill so badly, and he understands Solomon Hill is going to get beat on the dribble. So I got I to gotta, I gotta roam over to where the opposition understands that. He leaves, Paul George leaves his man. Backdoor light. Open bat, yep, I remember the three, exact play. He leaves a wide open three-pointer for, for Will Barton, and of course it goes in. So they're not trusting one another, and they're not, they're not being disciplined, and they're not being tough enough. And that's, that's a real issue because in November, regardless of the opponent, like we mentioned earlier, you know, not the best teams in the world, but hey, they still play defense. They still got up in guys' jerseys and were able to you know, make them uncomfortable. And if you look at that 45.12 minute period, I don't think the Nuggets ever felt uncomfortable. I really don't. You look at the highlights and you're just like, oh yeah, Will Barton makes 360 layups because he can just do that. Because- well, he was in two top top 10 sports center highlights. He right, had that right, 360 because, spin and oh my goodness. Right, right, because Jordan Hill is not protecting the rim to any degree, which lets, you know, Will Barton, you know, do acrobatic moves. And they're not playing good enough perimeter defense. And that's where you really miss, you know, George Hill last night, who obviously wasn't with the team for personal reasons. And I'm not sure he'll be with the team on Tuesday against Phoenix. But, boy, do they do they really, you know, I know we give a lot of... That's know, what I'm saying. A lot of people give him a lot of criticism for his defense. Right. Now he's not outstanding. Not an all-star right. defender. But his length and just his know-how of the game is he's tremendous at that point guard spot. Right, he's a solid defender, and he's by no way is he going to let Fourier or Moutier get by him <laughs> to, so many times that it just creates you know all these openings for the other for the other Nuggets. We talked so much about November. Just looking back quickly, the points they held the opponents to during that stretch, just picking games: eighty-two, eighty-seven, eighty-four, eighty-five, eighty-six. Over the last uh, losses, 112 in the losses, 101 overall in January. So, yeah, it starts. No, we can talk about the offense, shots not falling. It absolutely starts, though, at that defensive end. It really does. And until, until they can string defensive stops in the fourth quarter, then I'll start believing they can win these close games. I mean, that, that's essentially what close games comes down to, right? Mm-hmm. If the game's close, you have a better chance to win if you get one stop after another for a series of a couple minutes or a couple possessions, just stop them. Get a turnover. You know, create an off-balance 
fadeaway shot, create anything that's away from the basket, you know, protect the rim at all costs. If they can do that, they would have won at least half of these games that we, that we referenced earlier. And so until they do that, you know, they're not going to be in a position that they want to be in, which is right now they're currently seventh in the East, you know, another two losses, and they dip to about the eighth or ninth spot. Um, More than just stringing along stops, Nate, it's also down the floor one-shot trips. Denver had 17 offensive rebounds leading to 28 second-chance points. So right. it's not just stringing stops, but getting one solid stop, one allowing just one shot, no more. Right. And, and this goes to the inexperience last night that Frank had to use. You know, Jordan Hill, you know, for as, as well as he's played this year, just didn't get it done on the defensive end. So that's why Frank has to bring a mouth turner, a rookie that you want to play in these moments, but not in this particular moment when the team's slumping and you desperately need a win. And so he makes a goaltending mistake, which, you know, understandable. But the problem is that's when you, that's exactly where you need Jan Mahimni. Cause Jan is not going to go for necessarily the block shot. He's going to go to defend the initial shot. He's going to be there to defend the shot and then grab the rebound. And so many times, you know, for, for Miles' credit, he's a great shot blocker. But sometimes he takes himself out of the play. Mm-hmm. Great point. Out of, the, out of rebound position by going for the block or rotating too far once someone's penetrated into the paint, which leaves his man obviously wide open for either the, the, the assist dunk or the, you know, tip back, put back, you know. And so that's where you really need Yami. I mean, I think, I thought a lot of their 45-point issues in the, in the fourth quarter was a lot to – they didn't have their starting point guard, who's a solid defender, and they didn't have their starting center, who's a solid defender. And hopefully those two guys come back against a Phoenix team that's not particularly impressive in any stretch of the form. You know, that, you know, that was obviously their last win last week. Um, so hopefully those two guys come back, and maybe that starts their better defensive play. But Miles Turner, for all of his athletic wonder, <laughs> he puts himself in the position where he can't get the rebound a lot of times because he wants to block the shot or alter the shot so much. Um, that he puts himself out of position. And I, and I think that's going to happen. These guys, I mean, he's just 19. Joe Young's maybe 23. Defense is where the young guys really have to come along. Offense, they can jump right out there and play with a lot of guys out there. It's understanding the defensive principles, being tied together, which they clearly aren't at this point. And a lot of that is the various lineups. Like you said, George Hill, Yamihimi, who would have been in there late, were not in there. Uh, right. But those guys will come. But I, I did like... What we saw with those rookies, and if, say, Mahimi's out next couple of games, which we're not sure, he probably will be, we just don't know, with a heel injury, I'm not sure you don't start Miles Turner, one, for the experience, and two, to just continue to build on what he did against Denver. Right. Uh, you know, if, if, I was, if I had to predict, um, based on what I saw from Jan uh, during Saturday's practice, I don't think he's playing. I mean, you know, he was, I wrote in the Indy Star, uh, for Sunday's paper, you know, he, he's hobbling. He, you know, this is two times after the Washington game, he was hobbling around very gingerly. Yesterday, you know, the next day was more of the same. Clearly he didn't play last night. I don't, I honestly don't think he'll be um, healthy enough to play Tuesday. So yeah, play the rookie, play the kid. Like, you know, if- <laughs> that's why you invested a first round pick <laughs> in him. That's why you picked the number 11. So yeah, you know, start the kid. And have Jordan Hill come off his regular role, which is coming off the bench, providing sort of a microwave amount of points, eight to ten points per game. Um, he can, he's clearly he's clearly comfortable in that situation. I think when Frank has put him in the starting position, he sort of faltered at times, um, and and has had trouble with foul. You know, he's had issues with foul trouble, and also just staying tied together with the starters because again, that's not the guys he normally plays with. So yeah, play Miles to start the game. If John's not ready, have Jordan coming off the bench. And whether or not you saw Lavoy Allen or he comes off the bench is, is one reason or another. Like, you know, obviously who cares? I think they should start CJ tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, that's why you picked the number 11. He's clearly he, – he just had his best game of the season. That's a – you know, this is one way to reward him. Hey, let's see if you can do it again. You know, these are the challenges that Frank can come to Miles Turner and say, hey, 25 points, that's a great accomplishment. Let's see you do it again. This is how the NBA works. You know, one good night just can't be mm-hmm. one good night. You Move on to, to the next already. Yeah. yeah, you have to make it a consistent a consistent uh, pattern, uh, which is what obviously he wants to see so that he can play him more minutes if the team makes the playoffs. By the way, we didn't even mention Rodney Stuckey, who would have played a big role. He's one of right. the toughest guys yeah. on the team, and Vogel talked about it. He didn't see any toughness out of their guys. 
And a lot of that right. comes down to their performance there late in the game. Right, and Rodney would have had some impact on the game. Maybe not shooting the ball or scoring, but he would have been. He would have been. He'd be feisty out there. He's just a yeah, feisty guy. Been, he, yeah, he would have been an annoyance. Is the way I like <laughs> to describe Rodney. Yeah. He's an annoyance to anyone who, who he's guarding for, for more, you know more times than not. Was there anything that you discussed with Larry Burr that you just didn't have time for or space for, really, in your most recent story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I, I called Larry and I was fortunate to get him was, you know, I think I'm going to write later this week in the Indy Star. I'm not particularly sure what, what day just yet. But a lot of what we talked about with Larry beyond just the team overall was his thoughts on C.J. Miles. And, you know, for as much as we like to look at Paul's statistics, you know, he's now at 24 points a game versus what I talked about earlier where he was like 34, 35 points a game in November. As much as people like to look at that, you know, CJ's production has obviously dropped to some degree. Obviously, his shooting walls we've mentioned. But, you know, how hard is it to be, a, to be a professional athlete and say, hey, I'm coming off the bench this night. I'm starting this night. Hey, I'm the two guard on the floor. And then when I come back into the game, I'm all, all of a sudden the power forward because, we're, you know, we don't want to tinker with Paul George. So I talked to Larry Bird a lot about where CJ's rolling here fits i mean you know larry's very proud of what tj's done this year i mean he's having a career year despite his recent shooting slump i mean he's still playing at the highest level he's ever played before but where does this team go and where does cj fit in that and he might be the key to all this i mean if they're gonna go you know full-blown you know pace and space you know create off the dribble with four you know ball handlers on the perimeter then cj will be thrusted back into his role in November, which is where he thrived in. If they don't, then he'll be what he is now, which is a guy that you're not necessarily sure what you're going to get. I mean, last night he played per, you know, pretty well, given the amount of minutes that he's been shortened coming off the bench. But who knows what C.J. Miles is going to go from here. Is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be a guy coming off the bench? Is he going to play the two? Is he going to play the four? What is his role moving forward? So me and Larry Bird talked a lot about that. And then the second thing with Larry Bird that, that, I, that I sort of found interesting was his idea that, look, we're not satisfied. But he sort of gave the impression that this could take the entire 82-game season to see if this works. And I think Larry wants to see it work. Obviously, he wants to, you know, he's put a lot of emphasis and trust into, hey, this is what we're doing from here on out. No more of this smash-mouth basketball. Let's go small ball. But he sort of made it clear to me that, you know, it may take all 82 games this year to really understand, does this style work for us or should we tinker with it more in the next offseason? Um, it'll certainly obviously depend on if they make the playoffs, whether you deem it a success. I would sort of say it will be a success if they make a playoffs, but for Larry, it may take all 82 games. You know, he wants, you know, he wanted a general idea at the midway point, obviously he doesn't have one because they're 22 and 19 and they've lost, I believe, 10 of their last 16 games. So let's see how the other 42 go or the other, yeah, let's see how the other 41 uh, games go and let's see where they go from here. But Larry, you know, sort of acknowledge the fact that this may take longer than any of us thought. I would call it a success if they get six seed or above. I kind of thought they'd absolutely be six, seven, eight. But I think if you finish above that six spot, then it's absolute, and you learn about yourself along the way for next season. Right. So it's not just a lost year. They're obviously not going to compete for a title. They'll probably they could reach the second round, and probably should. But with this group, so much of it is is learning what everything is about and welcoming these new pieces, getting them good playing time for these future years. But the trouble is, they keep losing a game here, a game there. With another loss, they dip down to like tenth spot. That's how right. tight this Eastern Conference is. Right. I, yeah, it's funny. You know, Scott, I looked at it. You know, they are either <laughs> three games from being the second seed, which is, like, crazy to think. Like, for all their issues, they're only three losses away from being <laughs> the second seed of the Eastern Conference. But, again, like you said, if they lose two or three more, they will be tenth. They'll be behind someone like the New York Knicks, which is just, like, inconceivable to some degree. Uh, given all the Knicks issues and their whole dysfunction as an organization. So, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Yes, if they make a fifth seed, you know, four seed matchup in the playoffs, that's a great success because that gives you a chance, you know, statistically to sort of have a chance to win a series. 
And honestly, I think the farthest they can go is the second round because I just I don't see them beating the Bulls in a seven-game series based on the three games that we've observed, and I don't see them beating the Cavaliers, uh, who I believe is just going to run through everyone. Basically, yeah. Yeah, on yeah. the East and, and, and on their on their way to a second straight trip to the NBA Finals. So, you know, if if they got the right matchup, they could get to the you know second round. And if injuries come along and it is to the benefit of them of the Pacers, then yeah, sure, that can make the Eastern Conference Finals and get swept by LeBron. I mean, sure, they could do that. I don't know if you would deem that a success either. If you say, hey, we have to play, <laughs> we're required to play four games where we know we have no chance of winning. But, you know, it'll be exciting for fans, no less. You know, they'll get another chance to see Paul and, and LeBron go at it. But I think the best-case scenario for them is to get into the playoffs, surprise the team based on matchups, and get to the second round. Last thing I want to touch on is just Paul George. What he was able to do early on here is the late. How much of this do you see him as kind of tiring a little bit after, one, just getting back after it and kind of being on a high of, finally, I'm back. This is what I worked for. This is what those awful nights were about. And then just the grind of the NBA season catching up with him after being away. And then also having, I won't necessarily say a new role because I don't see it just yet, but having to be the guy. There's no more at the end of games. It it used to be what I loved was the George Hill, David West 1-4 screen, and it'd be a George Hill drive. He could pass it off to David, take it himself, or kick it to Paul in the corner. Now it's kind of Paul's show. And he hadn't quite realized into that position just yet. Yeah, I look. I mean, this he's the he's the key to everything. I mean, whether this works out or doesn't, will more or less be on Paul George's shoulders. Then I would put the burden more on Paul George's shoulders than I would Frank Vogel's. Um, God, what he did in November was spectacular. I mean, it it it, it was so refreshing and so astonishing that I just don't believe he can ever get back to that point this season. Maybe he, you know, maybe after a year mm-hmm. of being the guy, of being the, the true star, of, like, having the burden of, hey, it all goes towards me regardless of what else is around me, maybe he'll play to that level next year because he has that year of experience where, yeah, we had this transition and now it's all on me. Like, I'm, I'm ready. And he might be, you know, more mentally ready to take on that ownership of that role. I just don't see him as a natural leader. I think, for the most part, a lot of people, are you're either a leader or you're not. Some can learn to become a leader. I see him more of a guy that's going to lead by example, get things done defensively, hit the big shot, but he needs that other guy to, to take care of the little things. That's just my take. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And I thought, you know, after the Boston loss, which clearly he should have, you know, my view was, you know, all you guys need to sort of own up to the fact that, yeah, we all sort of gave that game away. I found it odd that, you know, Candace sort of asked him, hey, where is the leadership? Like, you know, is this on you? Like, like, how do you guys fix this in the, in the last minute of these games? And he sort of just tossed it to like, well, if David West was here, we wouldn't have this problem. And part of me was like, well, that might be true to some degree, but Paul, like, wake up. It's your time. Let's go. David West isn't here anymore. <laughs> like, he's, gone. he's gone and he's never coming back. And as much as a mentor as he was to you, as much as an influence as he was, as much as he took some of the burden and pressure off of you, he, Paul, the sooner Paul George wakes up and realizes David West is never coming back, and you are now, you are the David West now. You know, the, the mantle has been handed to you. The sooner he realizes that, the sooner he'll be better, and the sooner the Pacers will, will be in better position to win these games. Because you just can't say, well, if David West was here, we wouldn't have had all these turnovers. Well, we can play the hypothesis game as long as we want, but he's not here. Like, he's not here. Anymore. No point even going to that car. You know, no point even yeah, going yeah. that way. It's no, there's, there's no point. So stop mentioning David West. Just, just stop. And, like, if I was the Pacers, you know, if I was their public relations staff, if I was Larry Bird, if I was Frank Vogel, I would, I would pull, you know, Paul aside and say, look, do you see David West in the, on this basketball court? Do you see him in the gym? You don't. So stop mentioning him. Because he's never he's never coming back. You know, he's got his own situation with the Spurs. And guess what? He's not talking about you, Paul. You're, you're the one talking about <laughs> right. him. So. And, and more to it, didn't he also say, oh, it's kind of leadership by committee. We're all leading. 
Well, if you're all leading, there's no leader. No leader. I, I, I think you can have more than one. I think you could have two, and maybe one of those guys is a, a Rasul Butler that doesn't play a lot, but has just been in the league. He knows situations. Right. I don't think right now they have anyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you had to put, if you force me to say who's the leader on the team, I'd say it's Monte Ellis. I mean, Monte, yep. regardless of whatever's going on, has been very honest with, with obviously the media, has been honest with the team's assessment. Like, hey, you know, we haven't played well. We need to be playing for one another, I think, was what he mentioned to me Saturday uh, after Friday's game. Look, we need to play together. We need to play for one another. And we need to play defense. I mean, he's been at least a vocal leader that I've seen so far. Whereas yeah. Paul, like you said, is sort of either, you know, pushed it aside or, you know, sort of acknowledges everyone except for himself. You know, it sort of backed away uh, from that role, which he really needs to accept. And... For one reason or another, Paul, there's going to be a moment this season where Paul is going to have to take it upon himself, whether that's, hey, for the next four possessions, the ball goes through me and none of this other, you know, you know what, or him coming to the locker room and saying, look, this is unacceptable. I got here because we played defense. We've gotten to the levels where we want to got, where, we, where we've reached because of defense, and that's how we're doing it from here on out. You know, until Paul has that sort of seminal moment, the Pacers are still going to be in this flux position where, hey, they win two games, they lose three games. If they win two games, they lose another two games where they just have this up-and-down sort of season. So he needs – I think Paul, not necessarily so much on offense, but just getting guys' faces. Like, if you don't play defense anymore, like, I have no use for you. I'll find yeah, other guys that will play defense alongside me. This is what right. we do here, all right? right. You want to be part right. of it or no? Right, and I know that sounds sort of – mean-spirited given that they're still a team above 500, but he, he needs to make that point. He and Monte, I would love for them to just come together and say, yeah, if he's not playing defense, don't play him. Like, like you see Solomon Hill, who hasn't played much this year, When at least when he comes in the game, he's at least trying to play defense. Maybe he overplays to some extent, but he's, he's in the game to play defense. Some of these other guys... <laughs> he knows his role, are, too. <laughs> right, exactly. Some of these other guys don't understand the necessary discipline and effort necessary to play defense. And so Paul's got to make that point. And, hey, I expect him to be in a 25 to 28-point game uh, average, but he's also got to do all these other things that you can't clearly see shown in stats. No, very good, Nate. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, love having you on the beat. And uh, you have a great week, man. Appreciate it, Nate. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And uh, tell everyone to to keep uh, obviously watching uh, your shows and and listening to the podcast and obviously – if they have some free time, uh, come alongside me and Candace at the Indy Star. My thanks again to Nate Taylor for taking the time to join me on the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. Man, he was good, wasn't he? I'll have to have him on again soon. Well, the Pacers are in the midst of a four-game road trip, and then they return home for four straight in Indy, capped off on February 1st against LeBron and the Cavaliers. My shout-outs for this week go to LaVoy Allen for last week taking part in bingo at a Zionsville senior living community. How fun was that, probably? I wish I could have attended, but I was out of town. But that's such a typical move for Lavoy, a family man with such a great sense of humor, and I'm sure he made a lot of folks smile. Plus, he gave some prizes away. No reason for them not to have a good time. Also to former Pacer Jalen Rose, who's now with ABC and ESPN, and Fever star Tamika Catchings. Both of them were recipients of the Sports Legacy Award presented by the National Civil Rights Museum for their significant contributions to civil and human rights and for laying the foundation for future leaders through their career in sports in the spirit of Dr. King. They received the honor on Monday in Memphis just prior to the Grizzlies and Pelicans squaring off. As always, I welcome your feedback either via email, scott at vigilantsports.com, or on Twitter, at Scott Agnes. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Until next time, have a great week, everyone.